This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When it comes to my health care, I want choices, like more doctors and hospitals, so I get to see who I want. With Independence Blue Cross, I don't have to compromise when it comes to my care. Independence makes it easy. Their online tools help me manage my plan and even keep my health on track with programs designed for my well-being. And with free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, I get easy access to care when I need it, saving me time. Enroll at IBX.com by December 15th to begin coverage on January 1st. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. In Odyssey Station, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Lung cancer, the number one cause of cancer death in men and women, leads to 25% of all cancer deaths. In fact, lung cancer causes more deaths than breast, prostate, colorectal, and brain cancers combined. Today we welcome Dr. Jamie Garfield, Associate Professor of Thoracic Medicine and Surgery from the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University, a highly respected pulmonologist from the Temple Lung Center, which is number one for lung transplants in the country. She also holds other leadership positions at Temple University Hospital, including Director of Quality and Improvement and Patient Safety, a core clinical faculty member for the Internal Medicine Residency Program, a core clinical educator for Temple Medical Students, and she volunteers as a clinical faculty member for the American Lung Association, which we'll hear more about as the show goes on. Jamie, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Richie. It's a pleasure to be here. How do you define lung cancer for our listeners? So lung cancer begins with a mutation of cells in the tissues of the lung, and this mutation can be the result of direct deposition of carcinogens from oxidative damage or even from chronic inflammation. And this mutation in the cells can begin in the lung tissue itself, which we call the lung parenchyma, or in the air passages, which we call the bronchi. And Jamie, for our listeners, there are different types of lung cancer. I'm sure a lot of people would like to learn more about that. Sure. There are two main types of lung cancer um, that are called small cell lung cancer and non-small cell lung cancer. And these types are diagnosed based on how these cells look under the microscope. So non-small cell is the most common cause of lung cancer. It accounts for 80 to 85% of all lung cancer cases. And it's made up of a few different subtypes, adenocarcinoma of the lung, squamous cell carcinoma of the lung, and large cell carcinoma of the lung. I'll say a little bit more about these different subtypes, specifically adenocarcinoma, which is the most common form of non-small cell lung cancer and accounts for 30% of all lung cancer cases. 
and maybe 40% of the non-small cell lung cancer occurrences. The reason why adenocarcinoma is so important is there's an increasing incidence of adenocarcinoma um, over the past, you know, 50 years. The reasons for this are there's a few, number of different sort of possible explanations for this. Uh, adenocarcinoma is the most common cancer among those who have never smoked cigarettes. It's more common, the more common form of lung cancer in young people, and women are more prone to develop uh, adenocarcinoma, than, adenocarcinoma lung cancer than men are. And for this reason, these reasons and many other reasons, there is an increasing incidence of adenocarcinoma as the number one cell type of non-small cell uh, carcinoma. And this is not always the case. It used to be that squamous cell, large cell carcinomas were more common. Squamous cell represents about 30%, and this is also most common in smokers, and large cell carcinoma has a smaller percentage of 10 to 15%. Small cell carcinoma is the other main subgroup. So non-small cell makes up 85% of all lung cancer cases and um, non-small cell makes up 80% and small cell makes up a smaller 10 or 15%. This is sometimes called oat cell carcinoma because these cells look like oats under the microscope. Um, it can be a little bit more aggressive. It also tends to respond more favorably to chemotherapy and radiation. And then the third type of cancer that we see in the lungs is not actually lung cancer at all, but metastatic cancer from a different solid organ. So breast or pancreas or kidney or colon cancer, which metastasizes to the lungs. Mm -hmm. And I always try to emphasize that with my own patients, as I'm sure you do as well. Metastatic is the adjective or metastases or spread from a primary. So if a cancer starts in the breast and spreads to the lung, it's not lung cancer, it's breast cancer with spread to the lung. And you'll hear people say, oh, my, my relative had liver cancer. Most often it's started someplace else and, and then spread there. Um, and it's interesting, Jamie, I remember as a medical student always thinking, gosh, squamous cell is more likely with smokers and, and was always, that used to be thought that that responded better to radiation therapy, yes. But I guess in the long run, what you're saying too, small cell or oat cell, a lot of times that's that's a really sneaky one that has often spread at the time of diagnosis, right? So a lot of times uh, surgery for um, non-small cell or adenocarcinoma or squamous cell if it's focal, but oat cell, you might uh, have a different plan of therapy. Well, what I, what I expect we'll talk about at some point is that there are a lot of sort of genetic predictors for which treatment therapies may improve outcomes. Um, and, and the landscape of cancer treatment has really changed, or lung cancer treatment has really changed over the last 10 years. And it's it's an exciting time to you know be taking care of these patients because we're, we're able to offer a lot more therapies and a lot better outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I guess I put the cart before the horse, but when you decide on therapy, you first have to say, where is the tumor? How big is it? Is it near any other vital organs? Um, has it evaded lymph nodes? Tell us a little bit how you stage or decide therapy based on the size and uh, aggressiveness of the tumor. Sure. So staging is based on what's called the TNM criteria. T stands for tumor size and location. N is whether or not the tumor has invaded or spread to local lymph nodes. And then M is whether or not the tumor has spread or metastasized, as we used that word before, um, outside of the chest to other organs, bones, liver, adrenal glands, or elsewhere. Sometimes we'll use the term clinical staging, meaning we will make an assessment of what the stage of a cancer is based on what we see on imaging alone. But more commonly, we 
prefer pathologic staging, which will include both imaging and also tissue sampling. And the reason why accurate staging is so important, because not only does it determine what treatment options are available, but it can be used to prognosticate. And I know people are not statistics and, you know, data, statistical data on five-year survivals don't account for things like comorbid disease and tumor mutations. But in general, higher stage cancers have fewer treatment options and poorer survival rates. And lower stage cancers have more treatment options and much better, more favorable survival rates. And that's really the focus of lung cancer screening initiatives is to detect more and more cancers at an earlier stage when they are more treatable and the five-year survival and the overall prognosis is more favorable. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're making such great strides with that, especially in a specialized lung center like yours. Uh, were you about to say something in addition there? Well, I was going to say staging is complicated and, you know, it's a uh, it may re require multiple tests, PET scans, CAT scans, and also invasive or minimally invasive procedures like bronchoscopy, um, CT guided biopsy, even surgery. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about bronchoscopy, you sedate the patient and a very tiny flexible tube goes into the airway and you have access to, to really a lot of area and uh, it saves the person surgery for biopsy if you could put a little scope in there. And when, if, while we talk about biopsies, we have about a minute left in the segment, you can take a tissue sample if depending where that spot on the x-ray or a cat scan is right if it's if it's right in the airway you can get it with the bronchoscope but tell us a little bit about how you do a biopsy um, so bronchoscope is a flexible telescope. We navigate through the airways to the area of the lung that we're interested in where the nodule is, and we take a small little bite of this tissue. Um, the patient has no pain receptors or pain fibers within the lungs, and so there's no pain. Sometimes there's bleeding, but we're able to control that with local bleeding you know, therapies. And the patient goes home the same day. It's a very, it can be a half hour procedure, maybe up to an hour and a half. In the most complicated cases, it's a very safe procedure. We do this routinely. And this allows us to get information to do additional testing on tumors to find out if there are genetic mutations or uh, immune um, mediators that would allow us to pick the right targets. And when we come back from the break, we'll hear more about what we learned from those tissue samples and how we can really have targeted therapy for each individual. Stay with us and we'll be back with Dr. Jamie Garfield. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. And welcome back to Your Radio Doctor with our guest, Dr. Jamie Garfield from the Temple Lung Center. Jamie, we were talking about evaluating a patient that has lung cancer, or we suspect lung cancer. So you get the biopsy with bronchoscopy uh, or possibly with a CAT scan guided needle biopsy or aspiration. And then you can even, f uh, you wanna see what type of lung cancer it is to decide your therapy, but there are newer ways to make it even more specific. Tell us about that a little, if you would. DNA mutations, maybe? Mm -hmm. Sure. So lung cancer treatment has really evolved over the last few decades. It used to be really extensive, huge surgeries, toxic chemotherapies and radiation. And now we're able to really offer targeted radiation, minimally invasive surgeries. And in addition to chemotherapy, we now have the option to get, to offer targeted gene therapy. So we, we look at these cells under the microscope and we look to see if they have any discrete mutations that we we've identified to be associated with lung cancer. And there are a number of therapies, you may have heard of some of these 
mutations, EGFR, KRAS, ALK, BRAF, these mutations, each of these that I've just mentioned, have therapies that are directly targeted against these mutations. And so patients are able to go months and sometimes years on uh, targeted gene therapy before they even need to get to chemotherapy. And that's that's an amazing thing because the, the initiation of chemotherapy is sometimes a, a huge change in, in quality of life and um, symptomatology management. In addition, immunotherapy is another kind of new uh, horizon on lung cancer treatment, which is how the immune system can be activated to attack cancer cells. And we're able to also send these specimens for um, markers uh, or receptors on the cells that could be targets for immune therapy. Um, there's a lot of less common mutations for which targeted therapy is being tested as well. And again, this is really like I think, the frontier of uh, cancer treatment and an intense area of research and focus. Mm -hmm. And so for our listeners, there are two types of genetic testing. When we look at somebody and get their family history and test for genetic you know, patterns in their family, but we're testing tumors for DNA mutations. And then what you're saying basically is you can get the person's immune system to cooperate and fight the cancer if you teach the, the soldiers in their system how to attack the cancer, yes? Yes, exactly. I mean, lung cancer is not a cancer that has um, clear genetic uh, genes that predict a risk for lung cancer, whereas breast and ovarian cancer and some of these other GYN cancers, um, and, and many people know about these, have genes that are associated with increased risk. A lot of um, the endocrine cancers also have genes associated with risk of developing um, these diseases and, and malignancies. Lung cancer is not like that. We can't just do a battery of tests of blood work to see um, who's going to develop lung cancer and who's not going to develop lung cancer. But as you said, we have the ability to test the actual cells for genetic mutations, and these mutations, can um, we can use them to choose very targeted therapy before uh, turning to chemotherapy. And you're right, there is no isolated gene yet for lung cancer risk in families. But if you do have a family history of lung cancer, that's one of the metrics that you use to decide. We're going to talk about that later, the, the great new screening um, opportunities there are. So we are talking about risk factors. And of course, we know the number one risk factor for developing lung cancer is tobacco smoke, but that's not the only uh, risk factor. And we can choose to smoke or not smoke. There. So we try to talk about and teach our patients where you can make choices to avoid risk factors. Let's go into some of the risk factors. Sure. So the number one risk factor for the for the development of lung cancer is tobacco smoking. It's estimated up to 90% of lung cancers are attributed to tobacco smoke. Um, and the risk of lung cancer increases with both the dose, so how many cigarettes you're smoking, and the duration, the, the length of time that you smoke. And we, we use this uh, term pack year to combine the number of cigarettes or the number of packs someone smokes per day times the number of years that they smoke to predict uh, risk. Um, and so we say someone might have smoked a pack a day for 20 years, that's a 20 pack year smoking history. And so the more pack years someone smoked, the greater the risk for lung cancer uh, is. And the sooner you quit smoking, uh, the greater your risk reduction. And so one of the maybe greatest tobacco studies of all time, and in fact, I listened to your one of your previous guests mention this as well, um, was a prospective study by Dr. Dole et al. Um, and he looked at 
34,000 British doctors and followed them over time. This is when doctors routinely smoked cigarettes and um, was able to really very cleanly and clearly show that it, for the for these doctors who quit at the age of 30, they gained 10 years of life. If they quit at 40, they gained nine years of life. If they quit at 50, they gained six years of life. And even if they waited and quit at 60 years old, they still gained three years of life. And now that we know the, the inflammation that it causes and the, the carcinogens or cancer-causing agents that people inhale, it makes perfect sense. And you're going to talk, I hope, a little bit later about the American Lung Association and uh, ways that s cessation of smoking or, and don't forget, my listeners, cigar and pipe smoking, you're, you're not getting a pass with that either, right? That bumps your risk for lung cancer, maybe not as much as cigarettes, but... They're still not no, our no. friends. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So c cigar and pipe smoking are no uh, certainly no safer for you than cigarette smoking at all. Um, so people, it, it has a lot to do with the, the smoking practices. So people who smoke pipes and cigars and um, even some types of cannabis may hold the smoke in their mouth a little bit longer before they inhale. And they're um, sort of uniquely at increased risk of head and neck cancer, particularly oral cancer, tongue Ooh. cancers. Wow. Um, in addition to lung cancer. Um, and, and another sort of Mis misinformation that I want to dispel is that, you know, there are no safe cigarettes. So um, low tar cigarettes or menthol cigarettes or filtered cigarettes, they're all still cigarettes and they absolutely all uh, carry an increased risk of lung cancer. Um, in fact, menthol cigarettes perhaps have an, uh, an even greater risk of lung cancer than traditional cigarettes. And, and some of this has to do with some smoking patterns because, because menthol is cooler and a little bit easier to, to inhale deeply. Um, some of the some of the ways in which people smoke menthols means that the, these carcinogens are deposited more deeply into the lungs. Uh, menthol cigarettes are also more addictive and harder to quit from. So there is no safe cigarette. Um, there's no safe tobacco product. Um, and I think there's been some really intentional and malevolent advertising suggesting otherwise by big tobacco and others. And you say, uh, of course, secondhand smoke uh, may be... Um those people, especially if children and adolescents, they have an exp it's harder to quantify if people exposed to secondhand, but they've started as children, so maybe the length of time they're exposed uh, is more of a factor, but you know, how do you determine that? But the, the second leading cause, tell us about that if you would. Yeah, so after, after tobacco smoke or a after active tobacco smoke, after, the, after we, get a, we do away with those who are actually smokers themselves and we look at the risk for the development of lung cancer in, in non-smokers, the number one risk for the development of lung cancer in non-smokers is actually secondhand smoke exposure. Um, and that, that accounts for up to 36% of lung cancer in non-smokers. So uh, it's so important, as you said, to protect the people around current smokers. And that's where where smoke-free policies play in, where really uh, we rely on our, um, our you know, municipalities to make good uh, you know, recommendations to keep smoke away from the people who are not actually smoking. And there's no way to quantify secondhand smoke exposure. We don't have pack years. So we don't know what it means to be a child in the home of an active smoker, to be the partner of someone who's an active smoker. But we know that the number, number one risk factor in non-smokers is actually secondhand smoke. Behind secondhand smoke, the number two risk for the development of lung cancer in non-smokers is radon. And that's something that's really quite preventable. 
So radon is a radioactive gas, which is um, from the breakdown of uranium in soil and rocks. And it's really ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Some homes and some environments will have more radon than others, but everyone should have their home tested for radon and, and institute the appropriate preventative measures to, to mitigate that risk. There are, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, there's, there are other exposures, asbestos, um, you know, silica, lots of environmental exposures that are work-related or environmental exposures that are not work-related, that are just, uh, you know, fire, forest fires and air pollution, um, history of radiation. All of these increase our risk for lung cancer in non-smokers. Right. And we talked about a personal, uh, well, obviously personal history or family history. And you mentioned marijuana. I think the other thing that I, I noticed is that if you if people smoke uh, marijuana to the very end, that's where more tar lives. So that's and as you said, mouth and, and throat cancers with marijuana. Yeah, I mean, can cannabis has been smoked for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, and there are definitely important uses for medical cannabis, and I support the availability of medical cannabis. But if you are combusting anything into smoke, you are breathing in something other than free, clean air, and it causes risk of developing chronic lung disease like bronchitis and COPD, um, as well as probably a, a non-insignificant risk of lung cancer. Um, cannabis products are not well regulated and they're understudied. So we really don't have a way to know um, the substantial risk of these products over time. And of course, if you're getting it from somebody on the street, they're not looking out for your health the way your mother and father do. So it's probably a good idea to stay away from that if you can, uh, unless you say it's, it's medically prescribed. And e-cigarettes, we need to spend a little time on that. There, we can never spend too much time warning people about uh, you know, last week we talked about it and there's no long risk, long term data about lung cancer risk, but we have seen since 2019 E-Valley um, electronic and vaping acute lung injury. Tell us about that in about 30 seconds. <laughs> so uh, vaping products are not regulated either. So the FDA does not control what goes into these substances. And so, as you said, they have they are subject to, uh, you know, manipulation and abuse. And yes, in 2019, there was a, a contaminant that was added to many of the cannabis products that resulted in critical illness, respiratory failure, and even death in some otherwise healthy young kids who are using uh, cannabis vaping products. And that's just, this will certainly happen again if the FDA doesn't take control of the regulation of uh, vaping products. Mm -hmm. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back to hear more about lung cancer and prevention for Dr. Jamie Garfield. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor as we learn more about lung cancer and now we've made great breakthroughs in screening for lung cancer. Tell us about that, Dr. Jamie Garfield from Temple. Sure. So the uh, screening for lung cancer has been around for the past 40 years. In the 1980s and 1990s, they were using chest x-ray and sputum cytology to screen for lung cancer. And in the late 1990s, on the sort of heels of work done by a radiologist in New York, uh, low-dose CT scan was first kind of popularized and, and determined to be feasible. Um, after this work, the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial was conducted and published in 2011, and then more recently, was uh, another version of this was published outside of the United States 
Um, this is called the Danish screening trial. So all of these trials are really robust. Um, they are huge numbers. The NLST had 53,000 people. Dante had 13,000 people. And they all were prospective randomized control trials, which compared low-dose CT scans to chest x-rays to determine which of those uh, predicted um, lung cancer. And, and they overall looked at lung cancer mortality reduction. And uh, NLST showed there was a 20% risk reduction in lung cancer with low-dose CT scans compared to chest x-ray. And Dante showed even better data, 24% risk reduction um, in lung cancer when you use the low-dose CT scan compared to chest x-ray. So what our listeners need to hear is that a CT scan is a CAT scan. And when, when we were in medical school, I guess, we could not see lesions smaller than a centimeter. A centimeter is pretty good size. That's big. So now we can see salt and pepper from your lunch yesterday. That's how much better. <laughs> and the other thing that you mentioned, w there was hope some time ago that if we studied people, if we'd ask people to cough and we'd study their sputum and look for cells, but it's not very reliable. But this low density or lower <laughs> amount of radiation CAT scan has really opened doors and, and has proven to decrease death from lung cancer. It's one thing to say, hey, we're finding cancer earlier, but we're not saving lives. This right. is saving lives. And there's, as you say, a 20% reduction in one study. It's making big progress. So what are the current guidelines? I know they were changed recently. Yes, that uh, used to be starting at age 50. Tell us about that, Jamie. Who do we, whom do we test? Okay, so in, in 2014, the United States Preventative Services Task Force um, issued a guideline that was based on this NLST data, basically. Um, they recommended screening with low-dose CT scan for all adults between the ages of 55 and 80 years of age who had a 30-pack year smoking history. And they had to be active smokers or they, or they had to have quit within the past 15 years. In this, uh, of course, didn't capture everyone. And, and there was a lot of discussion amongst you know, all of us experts about you know, who we were missing. We wanted to screen earlier. We wanted even to screen later, we wanted to screen those who had smoked less cigarettes because we knew we were missing people who were going, going on to develop lung cancer. So in 2021, the USPSTF changed this age range and now recommends annual screening for lung cancer from adult, for adults who are the age of 80, uh, 50 to 80. So they dropped the lower range by five years and who have a 20 pack year smoking history. And these new recommendations, which were just came out last year, will increase the number of Americans eligible for lung cancer by six and a half million to close of 14, 15 million um, as per what these recent reports suggested. So that's a lot more people who qualify for lung cancer. Um, Screening. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. Cancer and, and I always remind my patients and my listeners, screening is a test that we do in somebody who has no symptoms, like something you report to your doctor, like headache or pain or findings or signs, what the doctor sees on your exam, uh, you know, a, a mass in your belly or a change in your blood pressure. So it's to look so we can catch it before it turns to cancer or, or at an early stage it's treatable. So to repeat it, we start screening now people ages 50 to 80 and a 20 pack year that would be a pack a day for 20 years or two packs a day for 10 years yes that's correct mm -hmm. that's correct are there any negatives to screening 
Uh, yeah, there, there are some negatives to screening. So lung cancer, you know, as you said, doesn't present with symptoms. You have to have a really large tumor in the lungs to develop any symptoms. And so there's no way that you're going to know of a tiny lung nodule. And that's when you want to find it. You want to find it when it's small. Um, and when the treatment options are really good and the prognosis is great. But screening does carry risk because we don't have a way of really being able to pick the perfect population of people who are going to benefit from screening. Um, all screening tests mammogram, colonoscopy, all carry some risks, risk of false positives, risk of uh, un unnecessary procedures done for a nodule that turns out not to be a cancer at all, risk of radiation exposure from repeated imaging studies over time, um, risk of just emotional stress and worry about having found the nodule, um, and even risk of overdiagnosis, which means the finding of a lung cancer that is in fact a cancer, but is so slowly growing that it would never have contributed to morbidity and mortality. False positives are a real concern, um, and a lot of you know patients want to know about this. Um, false positives in lung cancer screening is about 12 to 14 percent um, on the initial scan, and this is actually similar to mammogram. Um, and after subsequent scans, the false positive rate will drop because we're able to compare the new scan with the previous scans. In any one patient, the risk-benefit ratio may be different, and we have to have a conversation and figure out what the patient's needs are and wants and come over disease. But for me, I feel very strongly that anyone who meets the criteria to be screened for lung cancer should So I'm going to hold you for a second there. False positive for our listeners means that we see a spot uh, on an x-ray or a CAT scan, and you think, oh my gosh, is it cancer? And we get in, and it's not. But once we found it, we've opened Pandora's box, so we have to put the person through biopsies, et cetera. That's what I just wanted to clarify. Mm -hmm. Right. False positives are really common. The lungs are not sterile. The lungs are, as opposed to the liver and some of these solid organs in the body, the lungs are constantly being exposed to viruses and bacteria and allergens and particulate matter and pollution. And so it's not uncommon to have a little abnormal growth of cells. In fact, up to 98% of nodules that are found are actually benign nodules. But we have no way of knowing that they're benign. We just have to put them in the context of the person who's having the scan done. And we have to follow them over time. Well, which brings us to two things. You were going to mention that the American Lung Association has a program called Saved by the Scan. And it, it's great. We're going to talk about the American Lung Association a little bit later. Um, but their website is awesome. Isn't it lung.org? That's right. And uh, that's where you'd find places where you could get screened. So while we're on the topic of lung nodules, and we use that word to describe small lesions uh, found on, in, on X-ray or CAT scan, and what if somebody has suspected pneumonia or they need a, a preoperative chest X-ray and a nodule is found incidentally? Absolutely no symptoms or reason to think they have uh, lung cancer. What do you do with those that are found fairly often, yes? Yes, I mean, that's like probably the most common reason why someone would be referred to me is an incidentally found lung nodule. So there's criteria that exist that help us to determine how to follow these nodules. And we base it on two major things, both what the nodule looks like and what the patient, what the patient's risk factors are for the development of lung cancer. And we put these two things together and we use a criteria called the Fleischner's criteria. And it may say that for a small nodule in a low risk patient, we can wait a full year before repeating a scan. And in a, a, a higher risk nodule in a higher risk patient, they may recommend that we push directly for a PET scan or a biopsy. So it's going to depend on, again, the qualities of the nodule and the, the personal qualities of the patient.
Mm-hmm. And the, the most of the time, those nodules are benign, isn't it? Like 97, 98% of the time? Yeah, 98% of lung nodules are benign for all those reasons I described before, because the lungs are constantly being exposed right. to things. Every time we inhale. So it could be a fungus or a bacterial abscess or TB, but that's even that's pretty unusual. It's usually a scar from previous pneumonia or something friendly. And then, of course, there are malignant nodules. Uh, and we talked about lung cancer. We have about a minute left. I wanted to ask you, Jamie, if a person is in a lung screening program and they have a low-dose CAT scan today, when do they come back for a repeat scan? Is that yearly or is that a lot of radiation? How do you determine that? So it, it'll depend on what the what the nodule, like, so what is found on the scan. So we use a criteria called the BIRADS, um, the, I'm sorry, not the BIRADS, the LUNGRADS criteria to determine how to follow screen detected nodules. So you're not talking about incidentally found, in, incidentally found nodules, you're talking about screen detected nodules. So these are in all high risk patients. And some of the recommendations for a very normal looking scan will be a year long, uh, you wait a year for a repeat scan. And again, for a higher risk nodule, you may recommend a six month or a three month or a biopsy or a PET scan. So there are really nice guidelines to follow to determine when the next follow-up CT imaging or biopsy should be done um, in the right patient. Beautiful. Let's take a little break and we'll be back for our final segment to talk about lung cancer prevention and screening. in our final segment with Dr. Jamie Garfield from the Temple Lung Center. And by the way, Jamie, thank you so much for sharing such great information with us today. Um, The people should hear that the Temple Lung Center is extraordinary. And when you have any issues or questions about lung disease, lung cancer, that's the place to go. Jamie, tell us about the American Lung Association. I know you're a very active volunteer, and tell us about some of their services, if you would. Sure. The American Lung Association has amazing resources for all people with lung disease. Um, as a, as a lung, as a, I'm, a, I'm a representative for the American Lung Association, and I use their services all the time. I refer all of my patients to uh, a number of their different programs, and you can see all of this at their website, lung.org. Some of the things I think are relevant to this talk that I wanted to highlight is that the American Lung Association has a state of lung cancer report, which is not necessarily something that an individual person would use, but it really is helpful for understanding just the epidemiology of lung cancer and also state-by-state state, uh, comparison for uh, survival, early diagnosis, surgical treatment, screening. Um, I think it's really informative. More recently, it's explored some lung cancer, the lung cancer burden among racial and ethnic minority groups. And and all of this, I think, is really important and and wonderful work that the ALA is doing. The next thing, the next uh, um, sort of program that the ALA runs is a a really robust smoking cessation program called the Freedom from Smoking Plus program. Uh, There are free hotlines at one Lung USA, and you can use these interactive features to create a quit plan. And for providers like me, it's a really easy place to refer patients for uh, help with smoking cessation. And then finally, we mentioned this briefly before, but the American Lung Association has a Save by the Scan initiative developed to promote awareness uh, and resources for patients and also healthcare, healthcare providers on screening for lung cancer. And you can go to this Save by the Scan uh, website and find out whether you qualify for lung cancer screening based on the criteria and also where to find a screening center near you. So important in the American Lung Association again, is lung.org. So we want to give people some take-home uh, homework. So the keys to prevention, Jamie, don't start smoking or vaping, please. 
Yeah, don't start smoking and vaping. I know quitting is hard, but know where to get help. Talk to your kids about smoking. Talk to your kids about vaping so you reach them before they start. Get your home tested for radon. Avoid these exposures, both environmental and uh, occupational exposures. And vote for local, state, and national leaders who will work to increase things like tobacco control and access to smoking cessation resources and coverage for lung cancer screening. Yes, you make such good points about that because I don't think the average person is aware of lung cancer screening. That's why we have so many things. You have so much information to share. And I want to bring you back because we want to do in January, I'm hoping to do New Year's resolutions, like how we can quit smoking. But then we'll have time to talk about the differences in behavior of lung cancer and lung diseases in men and women and disparities in health care, et cetera. But you talk about occupational exposures, asbestos, uranium silica, people that work in tap mines, and um, environmental exposures, people that live near highways, all kinds of issues that, and aren't there certain places in the world that wouldn't apply to our listeners, but that cook with a certain type of coal or a lot of firewood. So there's so much for people to hear about. And uh, I really appreciate you joining us today, Jamie, because I learned a lot from listening to you. And I know my listeners are very fortunate so and grateful. Jamie, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Ritchie. It's my pleasure. And now for your real champion. I call this segment, Catch a Wave. Bill and Kiki Karyanis, a beautiful couple with a happy family. Bill is an anesthesiologist, often the last face a patient sees before entering major surgery. His skill and gentle approach have brought comfort to many a frightened patient as they drift into a gentle sleep. Kiki is a school nurse at Ithan Elementary, cherished by her students for her caring manner. Though highly respected as healthcare providers, they take even more pride in their beautiful family tightly woven into the Greek community. Kiki says Greeks are passionate about their faith and their heritage, which provide a great support system. Bill and Kiki are parents to four children. One of the favorite places for family time is Ocean City, New Jersey. The kids grew up loving to swim, surf, and fish. Our story turns to Michael, the youngest child, born in August of 1993. He was the baby with the larger-than-life personality, could fill a room with a smile and energy. He loved the shore with surfing, swimming, even became a lifeguard. And he was a proud Greek-American, loved the food, the music, and the dance. Cold and precocious, but he could play songs on the piano by ear at age three, and eventually learned to play drums, bass, guitar, harmonica, and did them all well. He even started his own band as a high school freshman. In fact, one of his bandmates now opens for Ed Sheeran. Mom and dad are proud of the man he grew to be, but say his finest quality was compassion. Always went the extra mile for family and friends. On one occasion, Michael was surfing and noticed a nearby swimmer caught up in a riptide. Michael instinctively jumped off a jetty and brought the struggling swimmer to safety. Concern for others was his hallmark, but under his own calm surface, Mike was struggling with his own riptide. His family writes on their website, In high school, Michael started using marijuana. Eventually, he experimented with other drugs in college, which evolved into his battle with substance abuse. Michael went on to graduate summa cum laude from Westchester and was well on his way to a doctorate in physical therapy, a field that would greatly help patients. But his talent and energy barely disguised his own lingering distractions. By July 2018, Michael showed signs of struggle with his battle. His family worked as a unit 
helping to navigate the process of finding treatment, yearning to find the right path to wellness. Michael completed two inpatient rehab stays, but was frustrated that neither lasted beyond 21 days and advocated for more patient-specific programs. Michael was almost set to sail, but one last dose of synthetic fentanyl was the tidal wave that washed away this beautiful, talented, giving young man in February of 2019. Devastated by their tragic loss, Bill and Kiki began the Waves to Wellness Foundation to educate people about substance use disorder and take the stigma out of conversation. They also aim to provide early intervention for families and support those in recovery. Every summer, the foundation sponsors a fishing tournament to bring people together and raise funds to support recovery grants. These grants are quite impressive. They offer two weeks of food, shelter, and in-house therapy for patients making that transition from inpatient facilities to returning to life at home. Their website is a great resource for education, advocacy, and community service projects. Michael was a giver. Well, he learned that from his parents. When in rehab, Michael was known to spend time helping other patients, even finding something as simple as getting a bus pass. He told his mom, God put him there to help other people in his situation. Kiki says, now I hear Michael saying that to me. She continues, we're not some big organization, we're parents. And with our other children, we're all ambassadors for Michael on this earth. And when our message resonates with other suffering parents, it helps me too. I walk away feeling uplifted and that I help someone else. Bill says, there isn't a day I wake up without my first thought being, Michael, why? It's a grief we'll always have, but we have to learn to live with it, manage it, and turn it into something positive. Keeping Michael's memory alive, honoring his life and passion to help others. We salute you, Bill and Kiki Karianis, your real champions. Visit their website, wavestowellness.org. A special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and the support this year from Recovery Centers of America and Rothman Orthopedics. It's hard to believe we'll be launching year three starting in February. More exciting news about that in the weeks to come. Thank you for joining us today. Invite a friend to listen. Listen again to all of our shows on yourradiodoctor.com. Follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. It's the Christmas season. Time to get your Christmas decorations and make cookies. But Santa is not going to find you unless he hears the sounds of Sinatra playing in your home. So keep it here. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a wonderful and safe week and always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.